fact that we were made by God and for God, that each one of us was carefully fashioned, designed, created for a relationship with God in this life that then continues on into eternity. And so we've been looking at some practical ways in which we can start to enjoy God right here and now in anticipation of enjoying him forever. We've seen how we can enjoy God uh, through nature, through one another, how we can enjoy him in times of difficulty, knowing that he is with us and understands us and is sovereign over us. We've seen that we can even enjoy him in our sin, not while we sin, but when we turn back to him and experience the joy of his forgiveness. And then we've looked at practicing his presence, setting aside to be with him. We took three weeks to look at setting aside an entire day to be with God, to focus on him, the idea of Sabbath. I know that one of the main takeaways in our family on this topic seems to have been the Sabbath shluf. Remember we mentioned that, what Jewish people call the Sabbath afternoon nap. That's really taken off in our family. I hope it has in yours as well. And I do hope we picked up a few other things on that theme, not just the Sabbath shluf. The topic I want us to have a look at today, though, is enjoying God through his word. Enjoying God through his word. Notice that the topic isn't enjoying God through reading our Bibles. We all know that reading the Bible is an important thing to do. Uh, perhaps we worry or feel concerned that we don't do it enough. But I want to talk about something more than simply reading the Bible. And I think that when we get to the something more, that will motivate us to want to read our Bibles. And the something more is enjoying God through his word. As we begin, let me use an illustration for a moment, or let's rather use our imaginations for a moment. And we're going to be going back in time because I'm going to be speaking about things like stamps and envelopes and postmen, uh, things that we can't remember anymore. But imagine, it's Saturday night and Jonathan is studying for his final German exam, which he has the following morning. For some inconceivable reason, he thought it would be a great idea to take an eighth subject for his matric. And he is sat bent over some obscure German setwork poem with his German-English dictionary open on the one hand and his German grammar open on the other, battling to translate the text into English. He hates Germany, he hates poetry, he hates German poetry, he never wants to conjugate another German verb ever again as long as he lives, and he makes this sentiment perfectly clear to his dad who stuck his head down round the door to see how he's getting along. Jonathan writes and passes, barely, uh, his final German exam the next day, and with great delight packs up all his German books, his dictionaries, his grammar, into a box, puts it in the basement to rot, and never wants to think about the German language again. Until. Six months later, Jonathan receives a letter in the post. It has a German stamp on the envelope. And when he has a look at the return address on the back, he discovers that it's from Emma, the German exchange student who was at his school for four months just before the exams. 
Jonathan didn't have that much to do with her, but at her farewell party, just before she'd left, they'd had a really good conversation. And Jonathan had left that party wishing that she'd been staying a bit longer and wondering whether something could have developed between the two of them. Jonathan tears open the envelope and finds there is a four-page letter inside written in German. Jonathan goes flying downstairs to the basement, lifting and moving various cardboard boxes until he comes to the one with the German books inside. He grabs his German-English dictionary, his German grammar, and heads back upstairs to his desk and begins to translate. It's the same young man. It's the same desk. It's the same German grammar, the same German-English dictionary. But there's all the difference in the world, isn't there, between those two scenes. There's something more in the second scene, isn't there? There's relationship. There's love. And in a similar way, there's all the difference in the world between reading the Bible and enjoying God through his word. So I just want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture that I hope will motivate us to enjoy God through his word. And let's begin with one of the classic texts about God's word, 2 Timothy 3 from verse 16. This is Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, and he says this to him, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You'll probably know that on a human level, the Bible is not really one book, but consists of 66 books, written over a period of 1,500 years, written on three separate continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written by about 40 different authors from many different walks of life. I mean, you have fishermen, philosophers, poets, statesmen, scholars, shepherds, military generals, a doctor, a tax collector, <laughs> rabbis, priests, prophets. They wrote down history, law, poetry, prophecy, parables, personal letters, biography, and they also wrote in a variety of different moods. You've got some who wrote in the depths of despair, others who wrote in the heights of joy. But the Bible, according to this verse, is not simply the words of men and women. It's literally God's word to us. All scripture is God-breathed. Some Bible verses, uh, sorry, some Bible versions translate this as all Scripture is inspired. Uh, the word inspiration tries to capture this idea of Scripture being God-breathed. Uh, unfortunately, we often associate the word inspiration with the word inspiring. And let's be honest, there are parts of the Bible, like the genealogies or sections of the book of Numbers, that are less than inspiring. But the Greek word that Paul uses here for God-breathed refers not so much to inspiration as it does to exhalation, that all Scripture is breathed out, exhaled by God. It is his word, the very breath of his mouth. Do you remember how during his temptation in the desert, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And centuries later, Paul writes uh, to the Christians at Thessalonica in Greece, and he says this to them, 1 Thessalonians 2, We thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now many people say, but hold on, I thought you said that people wrote the Bible. Well, they did, but while the Bible is 100% the words of man, it's at the same time 100% the words of God. On the Alpha course, Pastor Nicky Gumbel uses this illustration. Uh, Sir Christopher Wren was one of the greatest architects the world has ever seen. Uh, He was the one who built St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He started when he was aged 44 in 1676. It took him 35 years to build. Uh, EMI would have a fit. (laughs) He finished the building in 1711 when he was aged 79. Now, everybody says that Sir Christopher Wren built St. Paul's Cathedral. In fact, he didn't lay a single brick. (laughs) Other people laid the stones. He used agents to do it. But he was the one who was behind it all. He directed the whole operation so that when it was completed, it was exactly the way he wanted it to be. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read that above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God sovereignly worked through these men and women, so organized their education and their life experience and their personalities and their thoughts, and so inspired them through his Holy Spirit that their words at the very same time became his words to us. But the Bible is not simply God's word to us in the past. This week I was reading uh, in the book of Hebrews where the writer begins uh, chapter 3 by saying this, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years. You saw what I did. Now, this is fascinating because the writer to the Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, which was written by David hundreds of years before this letter to the Hebrews. And then when you look at Psalm 95, you will see that David is referring to an event that took place hundreds of years before that in the book of Exodus, in chapter 17, when God's people rebelled against God. So David looks back on that event and says, in effect, today... God is speaking to you through that event. So putting all of that together, you have this event in Exodus chapter 17 where the people rebel against God and God speaks to his people. Hundreds of years later, David says, today God is speaking to you through what God said then. Hundreds of years after that, the writer to the Hebrews says, today God is speaking to you through these words. And now this morning, 2,000 years later, 
we look back to the writer of the Hebrews and say, today God is speaking to us through these words. Because notice most importantly that the writer says, as the Holy Spirit says. Not as the Holy Spirit said. He's speaking to us today. Pastor Tim Chester puts it this way in one of his books. God spoke in the Bible, but God also speaks in the Bible. The Bible isn't just a record of what once happened and what once was said. When the Bible is read, something happens. When the Bible is read or preached, God speaks. In every word, we can enjoy the Spirit's voice right here, right now. So in reading the Bible, we hear the very word of God, but in fact, there's even more to it than that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says this. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. So according to the verse just before this, the pure spiritual milk that Peter is speaking of is the living and enduring word of God which we, through which we've been born again. The pure spiritual milk is God's word. And we crave the Bible because we know that it tastes good. But you, did you notice that Peter doesn't actually say the Bible tastes good? He says the Lord tastes good. His point is that we taste the goodness of God in the Word of God. It's not just the Bible that we're getting, it's God himself. As one theologian puts it, when we hear and we read the Lord's words, we experience the joy of personal fellowship with the Lord himself. It's not just me opening up and reading the Bible. It's experiencing God through his word. And God's word makes a difference in our lives. Did you notice that in our reading from 1 Thessalonians earlier? Paul refers to the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. As the writer to the Hebrews says later in chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The great reformer Martin Luther said, The Bible has hands. It lays hold of me. It has feet. It runs after me. This sounds like a book that might be worth reading. Before we spend a few minutes looking at how this might apply to us practically, let me just mention an important principle about enjoying God through his word. And it's this principle that it's always important to remember the difference between the fact of our relationship with God and the experience of that relationship. The fact is that when we turn from our sin and we turn to God through faith in the finished work of Jesus for us, for our sin on the cross, we move from being God's enemies to being God's beloved sons and daughters. That's an objective fact. And that's something that God does. 
Jesus takes our sin upon himself on the cross, and in return, he gives us his perfect life. His righteousness is credited to us. There's nothing that we need to do in order to be saved. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, reading your Bible does not make you a child of God any more than reading the user's manual makes you a BMW. God makes us his children. That's the fact of our relationship. But it's possible to experience the fact of that relationship to a greater or a lesser extent. I'm sure that some of you uh, have subscriptions to Netflix. I guess it's the modern equivalent of Mnet or hiring a video, if you remember that far back, a subscription service to watch movies. I could ask the question now, do you have a subscription to Netflix? And some of you would put up your hands and some of you would not. It's a simple yes or no answer. You either have a subscription or you don't. You've either signed the contract or you haven't. But imagine in our congregation we have two men, John and Peter, who've both subscribed to Netflix. Uh, they've both signed up. Uh, John binge-watches three episodes of his favorite crime series every night and watches four movies on the weekend. Pete, however, watches one movie every two months and keeps on having to phone his granddaughter to get the login details. They've both got Netflix. It's an objective fact. But who is enjoying the benefits of the subscription the most? John is. Now, of course, our relationship with God is not a subscription service. A far better illustration would be one that we looked at a few weeks ago. Uh, a man uh, who has two sons, and one of his sons, Phil, really enjoys being with his dad, takes his dad out for breakfast every Friday morning, and they sit and they chat together. They play golf together once a month. They really have a good relationship. His brother Roger, though, phones his dad about once a month, mainly sees his dad at large family gatherings. How many sons does the father have? Two. What did they do in order to become sons? Nothing at all. They were born as sons. But it's very clear that Phil is enjoying being his father's son. And you and I while we are sons and daughters of God, can enjoy that relationship to a greater or lesser extent. And one of the ways that we get to do that is through his word. Well, putting all of that together, what, what might this look like practically in our lives as we head into another week? Well, most importantly of all, let's take every opportunity that we have this week to fellowship with God through his word. Have you ever thought what a, what a great privilege it is just to have a Bible, just to have the gift of literacy, just to be able to open it up on your phone or uh, you know, a paper version if you've got one of those at any time? And again, as I've said, each Wednesday we pray for areas in our world where it's not possible to have a Bible, where it's illegal to have a Bible. We have such a great privilege. But I was reading a story this past week about a man who'd been involved in a terrible accident and had managed to burn himself really badly, couldn't see anymore, couldn't hear anymore. And the only way he could read his Bible was through Braille, not with his fingers, they were too damaged 
but with his tongue. <laughs> and he'd managed to get through the Bible about four times already. We have such an incredible privilege of just being able to open God's word at any time and commune with God. But let's use every opportunity. It's probably best to try and do that at the beginning of the day if you're an early morning person. But perhaps you have a gap or several gaps during the day where you can turn to God in friendship through his word. Just take a moment before you open, just to quieten your heart, ask God to speak to you, and then open and read God's very word to you. It's also good to have a system, uh, not so good just to open up randomly at any point and put your finger down. I heard about a man who did that once and came across the verse, Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> I thought that was really bad and so quickly I closed it and opened and tried again and it said, what you are about to do, do quickly. So don't use the random open up the Bible at any point and read. But have some kind of system involved. Um, maybe you want to choose a particular book to go through. A uh, book of the Bible. Maybe you'd like to try and use some daily Bible reading notes that will suggest a passage for you and give you some of the background to that passage as well as an explanation or some questions to consider. Uh, with the YouVersion Bible app, you can even have someone read the scriptures to you, uh, which is a good method sometimes. I've told you before that I normally have three bookmarks in my Bible one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, one in the Psalms. And throughout the day, I'll try and read just a section from each, not a whole chapter or a whole two chapters, but just a section from each. And that helps because if you hit one of those horrible genealogies in the Old Testament, maybe you'll get something good in the New Testament or vice versa sometimes. And then practice praying the Scriptures. This is something that I've come across fairly recently. Um, it's also something that you will have got on your devotions. You'll know that Kurt Bjorklund often takes a passage of Scripture and he turns it into a prayer. Remember that we're reading the Bible for relationship, not just for information. It's so easy to pick up our Bibles and read in order to gather a few more facts about God that we can store away somewhere. But it's not about information. It's about relationship. And so we can hear God speaking to us through his word and then speak God's word back to him in prayer. Now with some sections of the scripture, that's easy to do. And the Psalms, for example, are already prayers. And so you take Psalm 63 and you pray it back to God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Other sections might need a bit more thought. Take John chapter 14, for example. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Lord, here are some areas in my life that are troubling me right now. Thank you that I can trust in you. Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. 
Lord, thank you that through your death and resurrection, you're preparing a place for me. Thank you that one day my faith will be turned to sight as I see you and spend eternity with you. Help me to live today in the light of that sure and certain fact. Thank you that my light and momentary troubles are achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Help me to view the things that trouble me in the light of eternity. And so on and so on through the rest of that chapter. Remember again, the aim is not to gain more facts about God. The idea is to enjoy God through his word. Let me close with a final illustration from Nicky Gumbel. Uh, I, I drive a, a Nissan car, but imagine for a moment, let your imagination run wild. Uh, suppose I was to get a new Nissan car. Suppose I was to get a brand new Nissan X-Trail. I always hoped that if I watered my Lavina enough, it would turn into an X-Trail. The car is delivered to my door, and I go out in great excitement, and I look in the glove compartment, and there is the Nissan owner's manual. And it's beautiful. It's glossy. It's got pictures in it. And I say, wow, this is fantastic. Look at this manual. I go inside, and I get out my pen, and I start underlining all the bits in the manual that are really exciting. And then there are bits that I really love, and so I start learning those bits off by heart, and I can quote them. Maybe I cut out little sections of the owner's manual, and I put them up on my mirror so that I can look at them while I'm shaving. And the particular parts that I enjoy, I ask Sam to set to music so that I can sing those bits. And I stand up and I give expositions about tire pressure. And I think this is so great. I love this manual. Maybe I'll join the Nissan Owners Club and meet with other people who, have, who love this manual. Maybe I'll learn Japanese so I can read it in its original language. That's all great. But there's no point unless I get in my car and drive it. Because the point of the manual is to help you drive the car. And the point of this book is to help you get into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and to enjoy that relationship.